On Thursday evening, the Chamber of Commerce held its annual dinner in the R.J. Corman airplane hangar. And one of the things that you agree to do in the use of the R.J. Corman hangar is that you agree to empty the whole thing out once you're done so that they can bring the planes back in. And one job among many jobs, as you can see, that hangar is full of people, tables, table decorations, all kinds of stuff. So about two hours after this picture was taken, that whole thing was empty and they were rolling in planes. And one of the jobs is you have to load up trash into somebody's pickup truck or, the, or a trailer they're pulling behind a pickup truck, because it's Kentucky, who doesn't have a truck and a trailer, right? And so somebody's there with a trailer, and we throw bags of trash into this trailer, and then we drive two blocks to another R.J. Corman property that's kind of near Save-A-Lot, where the big dumpsters are. And so Justin, Kent, and I are on trash duty. And it's snowing, the roads are snow-covered, it's really beautiful, but also slippery. <laughs> and we're throwing bags of trash into this giant dumpster. And when it's done, Justin and I are like, whew, thank you so much, Kent. We'll see you. And Kent is just standing there. And we're like, Kent, what's the problem? And he says, I live down by the river. I got to go down this sheer cliff road. I'm pretty sure I won't be sleeping in my bed tonight. <laughs> Kent doesn't live in the neighborhood. See, I live in Lone Oak. And Justin lives in King Crossing, and so he's in the neighborhood. He's in the neighborhood. So that's my house, and like me, you live in a neighborhood as well, right? You've got people who might live across the street from you. You've got the next-door neighbors. You know who I'm talking about. If you're in an apartment building or a dorm room, you've got the folks next door, the folks down the hall, and you've got neighbors. So in my neighborhood, I have a retired principal on one side of me. I have a retired Air Force pilot on the other side of me who has a drone business on the side. He's got this van and this thing slides out and it's a drone the size of, I don't know, Texas. And when it takes off, it goes, Brrr. you know, you can feel the wind. <laughs> okay. And across the street, I have Mr. Bowman, who's now a widower. His wife, who passed away a few years ago, she was the queen of the block. So every Halloween, she was a princess, and everybody wanted to go to Mrs. Bowman's house to get their trick-or-treats. And that's kind of a little snapshot of my neighborhood. On Thursday night at the R.J. Corman dinner, I got to talk with one of my neighbors, who's also a chamber ambassador that I don't get to talk too much, who lives across the street two doors down. And she was telling me about the party she attended this summer in the neighborhood. I'm not going to say where. And the amazing hut that these people had and the fact that it was a weed hut, which is a place where you go in to smoke marijuana <laughs> in my neighborhood. And I was like, tell me more, <laughs> right? <laughs> like mind blown. So I had in my mind, my neighborhood's just filled with kaji old people who go to bed early. Apparently not. <laughs> Apparently not. There's more going on in the neighborhood. So you have people just like that. In fact, you live in a neighborhood. And not only that, but you have people in these kind of categories. You've got the people who live close to you and then you go to school, or chances are you go to work, and you've got your coworkers. 
You've got the people who are in school with you, going to class with you and activities with you. And then you've got family, the family that lives close and the family that lives far away that you see once every two years. You know who I'm talking about? Crazy cousins and all that kind of stuff. And then you've got friends. I want you to think for a moment about some of the people in these areas in your life. Does everybody you know follow Jesus? Is everybody in your family an active follower of Jesus? Let me ask a second question. Do you believe that everyone in the world needs Jesus? Some of you are more convinced than others. Let me ask that question again. Do you believe that everyone in the world needs Jesus? Yes. Yes. Jesus is for everyone. All tribes, all nations, all ethnicities, Jesus is for everyone. Now, when I was young, I had a very limited view of God. I believed that God could only work in a lost person's life. If it, the only way that God could do that, the only way that God could work in a lost person's life is if I or someone else from Team Jesus was working in their life. And I had no concept that God worked in people's lives all the time, drawing people to himself. Wesleyans have a, a theological term for this. It's called provenient grace. It means God's grace is everywhere working all the time. So if I'm a missionary and I show up to this people that have never heard the name of Jesus, God's already at work there. And so I'm trying to find ways to build bridges so that I can announce the good news of what God is doing through Jesus. So one of the ways this played out for me is that um, when I was in 11th grade, uh, I had a friend named Amy, and Amy and I would go back and forth. She was, loved literature, loved reading books, and uh, she did the uh, thing with pictures, the yearbook. She did the school publications, you know, Sunday morning. Uh, so she did all of those kind of things, and one day in literature class, right as the bell was about to ring, she says to me, Max, she had just finished the, the entire seven books in the Chronicles of Narnia. And she says, I just wish Aslan were real. I open my mouth to say something, and as soon as I open my mouth, ring, class starts. <gasps> I never had a chance. And for years afterward, I thought, man, I never did anything. This is so terrible. Let me ask you a simple question. Was God at work in Amy's life? The very fact that she was asking this question at that point was an indication that God was working in Amy's life. Amy was curious and Amy was expressing interest. Man, I wish Aslan were real. So today's big idea is actually one stolen from uh, an evangelism professor at Wheaton College. And it's really simple. The way he puts it is even better than what's on the screen. Prayer to God makes sharing about God effective. But the way he puts it is this. Before we can talk to people about God, we need to talk to God about people. Let me say that again. Before we can talk to people about God, we need to talk to God about people. And believe it or not, this was true of Jesus. So, Normally, I'm just in one passage, but today I'm going to read three passages from the Gospels to give you a sense of how Jesus rolled 
and, and the work of the Spirit in Jesus' life. So the first vignette is from Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20, okay? And there's one verse we'll kind of hone in on, and I'll put that on the screen in just a minute. So chapter 16, uh, verses 13 to 20. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And so he asked them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, oh, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, you're blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you're Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I'll build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. So we can put up this verse from Matthew chapter 16. The key thing Jesus says here is, my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. So Peter has spent nearly three years at this point with Jesus, eating with Jesus, sleeping with Jesus, going on the road with Jesus, watching Jesus heal people, healing people in the name of Jesus, doing all of this kind of stuff and has this light bulb moment. And Jesus says, what? God has revealed this to you. <laughs> the light bulb wasn't so much hanging out with Jesus, right, as it was God working in Peter's life. Peter knows that Jesus is the Messiah because God the Father has revealed it to him. The second vignette is from the Gospel of John. So John chapter 16, verses 7 through 14. If I can get there. John 16, 7 through 13. But in fact, it's best for you that I go away, because if I don't, the advocate won't come. If I do go away, then I'll send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin, and of God's righteousness, and of the coming judgment. The world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me. Righteousness is available because I go to the Father, and you'll see me no more. Judgment will come because the ruler of this world has already been judged. So the key verse here in John chapter 16 is this little phrase, and when the Holy Spirit comes, he is referring to Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will convict the world of its sin. I've got good news for you and me. We don't convict anybody of anything. God convicts people all the time. God convicts people all the time. In the early days of Generations Community Church, there was a young couple and a young woman, and I could just tell something was up with her. Didn't know what, and I wondered if she was cheating on her husband. I just wondered that, okay? And this is the question that I would ask her on Sunday mornings. I would come up to her, and I would just say this phrase, you don't seem okay. Is there anything you want to talk about? She would never look me in the eye. She would always look down at the floor and three months of this go on before I take her husband out to coffee and I say, I think you need to confront your wife. And of course he does. And the next morning he calls and she had admitted to the affair and the whole nine yards. Well, let me ask you a simple question. 
Was Max Vanderpool and his Charles Finney eye staring into her soul, was Max Vanderpool causing her problems or was God causing her problems? God. God was at work convicting her, and that's what God does. God does those kinds of things, okay? Um, Charles Finney was this famous, I just referenced him, he was this famous preacher in the Second Great Awakening. Um, America has had three Great Awakenings, if you're keeping score. And the Second Great Awakening happened in the 1800s, okay? About 1830 to 1831, it culminated in a year of just spectacular stuff in upstate New York. Uh, Rochester, New York was a hotbed, and all of Western New York earned this phrase. They, it was referred to this way, the burned over district, which meant that the fires of revival had burned so significantly, it just burned everything to the ground. It was the burned over district. Well, Charles Finney would tell you that the success of those evangelistic crusades had nothing to do with his preaching and everything to do with a partner of his uh, named Nash, Daniel Nash. So when Finney would agree to speak in a particular city at a certain date, Daniel Nash would travel to that city about three weeks beforehand to pray. He would gather other like-minded pastors and people in the town to simply do one thing, pray for three weeks, leading up to the time when Finney would arrive. There was one lady who had rented out a room to Daniel Nash that got so concerned, she wrote to Charles Finney and said, I am profoundly concerned for your friend, Mr. Nash. He has not come out of his room for three days <laughs> and has not eaten anything for three days. I am of great concern for his health. Now, when Finney arrived, he met the woman and he simply told her this, my friend and partner is travailing in prayer. That was the phrase he used, okay? Interestingly enough, a, a young upstart from the South learned this pattern and his name was Billy Graham. In the year 2000, Franklin Graham came to Lexington but a year before the crusade, or at that time they were calling them festivals, a year before the Franklin Graham Festival, the Billy Graham team showed up in Greater Lexington and they started meeting with churches and pastors to do one thing. Guess what that one thing was? Pray. And they begged church people all throughout Greater Lexington, think of one, two, or three people that you know of that's lost and just start praying for them. And they called it Operation Andrew. Andrew from the New Testament, <laughs> okay, because he got his brother to go see Jesus. And so this is, so when, by the time Billy Graham, think about this, by the time Billy Graham stands up in that crusade and says, I'm about to make a decision for those of you in the back row, come now, your friends will wait for you, you know, and that southern accent he had. By the time he stood up to do that, the whole picking community had been praying for about a year. And a lot of the people in the auditorium, in the stadium, had been praying for their friends and then invited their friends as at any wonder. <laughs> so a few people made a decision. No, it's no wonder at all. That's what happens when we're working in conjunction with God, because God is drawing people to himself. And there are seasons of harvest, and then there are seasons where it's just planting seeds, okay? Keep that in mind. 
And that brings us to John chapter 6, okay? John chapter 6, verses 35 to 51. Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But you haven't believed in me, even though you've seen me. However, those the Father has given me will come to me, and I'll never reject them. For I have come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me, not to do my own will. And this is the will of God, that I should not lose even one of all those he's given me, but that I should raise them up on the last day. For it is my Father's will that all who see the Son and believe in him should have eternal life. I will raise them up at the last day. The people began to murmur in disagreement because he had said, I'm the bread of life, come down from heaven. They said, isn't this Joseph's son? We know his father, we know his mother. How can he say I came down from heaven? Jesus said, stop complaining about what I've said. For no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them to me. And at the last day, I will raise them up. As it is written in the scriptures, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and leans, learns from him comes to me. Not that anyone has ever seen the Father. No, only I, who was sent from God, have seen him. So there's another key verse here in John chapter 6. No one can come to me unless who? The Father who sent me draws them. Okay? So now you're kind of getting this sense that the human heart is something that you and I can't necessarily change. So one of the things I've learned as a pastor is that I do not have the power to make that which is dead come alive. I do not have the ability to take what the Bible calls a stony, cold heart and turn it into a fleshly, beating heart that beats after God. I can't do any of those things. I can teach the Bible. I can announce the good news. I can open the scriptures. But God draws people to himself. God draws people to himself. This is why the prophet Hosea says that the human heart is like unplowed ground that needs to be softened. Okay? Um, for the longest time, I didn't understand the parable of the sower. So there's a, Jesus teaches this parable about a farmer who scatters seed. And one of the things that you can see in the parable of the sower is that the ground is speaking to the hearts of people, okay? Um, and sometimes people's hearts receive the gospel and they're excited at first, right? There's different ways of responding to the gospel because there's different kinds of hearts. Um, the way that I've seen this play out as a pastor is that there have been times when someone has uh, come to generations from another church and they've made a decision in a, in a generation service. So one of the ways we found out this in the early days is on our family and children's application, it would say, have you made a commitment to Jesus Christ? If so, when? And I noticed that people were checking the box at a worship service at generations. And I was like, what? People are getting saved on Sunday mornings and they're not even telling me? <laughs> and I would think, how is it that they came from another church and never heard the gospel? And then... I started having kids grow up under my teaching, go to some camp and make a decision for Jesus. And I was like, now wait a minute. Now wait a minute. I'm pretty sure at least once in that kid's life, they heard the gospel. But the heart was stony, cold, didn't, 
didn't take, right? Okay, and that's how it works with God, which is why we need to pray first. We need to pray first. God is drawing people to himself. God is at work. And so we need to do this praying part, this discerning part. Our friends at InterVarsity have a great way of thinking about this. They call these the five thresholds, okay? Um, before someone is to a point where they're ready to make a decision for Jesus, there are some other steps that they typically take to get to that point where they're ready to say yes. The first one is trust. If you've got someone who's lost in your life and they don't trust you and they don't trust Christians at all, that's a big barrier. But if through the way that you're interacting with them, etc., you build enough trust, that's a step. There's another threshold, the threshold of being curious. Um, if they're not ready, if they're not there, when you talk about your faith, they're not interested. When, they talk, when you talk about God, they're not interested. But then some of them, they take that other step. And now when you're talking about the way that you prayed when your mom had cancer and this other stuff, they wanna, they're asking you questions. They want to know. They're curious. Another step is this open step. That's where they have a sense that they want something more. A lot of Americans are there right now. Uh, money didn't do it for them. Relationship and marriage didn't do it for them. Raising kids didn't do it for them. Job success didn't do it for them. And they're like, is this it? Is this what life is? That's another step. And then another step is this seeking. There's people that are actively, I meet people at the, met a guy at the Chamber of Commerce five or six years ago who shocked me because he meditates every day. He doesn't believe that there's a God at all, but he meditates. I said, why do you meditate? He goes, I want to have peace. I said, interesting. I know a man who taught a lot about peace. Oh, really? Yeah, his name's Jesus. <laughs> right? And then finally, that final threshold is they get to a point where they know they have to make a decision. And it's a yes or no to Jesus. But I want you to think of that in terms of this continuum, in terms of these thresholds, okay? So in Jesus' life, by Jesus' own words and admission, it's God who's drawing people to himself, and we can cooperate with what God is doing when we're prayerful and discerning. So let me ask a couple of questions. Why do you think that we in the American church forget to pray for someone before we start talking to them about God? Why do we forget to pray before we start talking to them about God? And then secondly, have you ever prayed regularly for someone who was lost? How has prayer changed the way you related to them? How has prayer changed the way you've related to them? So a couple of ways that you and I can take this home, okay? First off, this week, pick one day, just one day out of the seven, and just spend five minutes. If you're really ambitious, spend ten. Pray for just one person in your life that you think is lost, believe is lost. Just pray for that one person. If you're really ambitious, go up to three people. But just start with one. One person that they would come to know Jesus. And it can come from any of those four areas of your life. Your neighborhood, 
your work, your school, your family, or your friends. And here's some prayers that you could pray. God, give so-and-so an extra boost of energy today, and may they have the joy of knowing you. Father, give my neighbor peace today. Help her to find you in this difficult situation. God, lighten the load of my coworker. Help him discover that your load is easy, your burden is light. Lord, I ask that so-and-so would come to know you. Soften their heart. Help them to see Jesus for who he is. When I was a kid, my mom was mad at God and mad at the world. And more than one well-intentioned Baptist minister came into our living room to lay out heaven and hell and see if they could get Sherry Lee to make a decision for Jesus. Brent and I would stand in the, cor- you know, the doorways of our room with our ears into the hallway to see what parts of the conversation that we could hear. And I'm going to tell you right now, she wasn't having it. She wasn't having it for any of these Baptist pastors. They wasted their time coming into that living room. And yet, when I went off to college, I remember mentioning something, I'm making some disparaging remark about my mom and where she was with God. And my dad caught me off guard. He grabbed me by the arm and he said, son, I pray for your mother every day. And I believe the day will come when she sees, when she sees Jesus for who he is. When he said that to me, I thought he was crazy. It's like, are we talking about the same person that I've lived with my whole entire life? You know, because when you're a teenager, you really know your parents, okay? <laughs> okay? And he was like, no, I'm telling you, son. Well, sure enough, in that next decade, she had a bout with cancer. She made a decision. She got baptized. Ding! My worldview was shattered. <laughs> Apparently, God can do anything and frequently does do anything, <laughs> Okay, so another tool that you can use is this one from our friends in Scotland. I happen to think that that the way America is becoming looks more like Europe than America of the 1980s. And our friends in Scotland have this whole website called trypraying.org, and they've got resources. And one of the tools that they use with people and people that you meet, particularly at work and school is just a challenge for them to pray for seven days. Pray and ask God to reveal himself to you over the next seven days. And it's amazing what God will do. (laughs) If someone in all seriousness reaches out and says, hey, hello, anyone there? It's interesting what plays out, okay? So try praying provides booklets uh, and guides to help people get started on a journey of faith. It's got suggestions, all kinds of practical things. I got a front row seat to this when I was a college student because I got convicted when I showed up at college to start praying. I had never prayed before regularly. Um, My prayers at that point were really when I needed something from God, that's when I would kind of be like, hey God, I really need like $500 or hey God, I need you to like, you know, that, that was just how I prayed. And when I got to college, I had some roommates and people that I live with on my floor that I I realized, oh, like prayer is more than just asking for what you need or want. Oh, ding, 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 ding. And and it just expanded my prayer portfolio. So I would, on Sunday afternoons, I would hang out with guys in my dorm room and we would pray that revival would come to Wheaton College. I would show up on Thursday evenings at the vineyard and pray with Kitty about like, You know, oh God, show me my heart and my own wickedness. And, you know, 
you pray, if you pray that prayer to God, trust me, God will be like, oh, okay. <laughs> and then if you're married, sometimes the voice of the Holy Spirit will sound just like your spouse. <laughs> it's the weirdest thing how that works, okay? Um, I moved to Kentucky in 1992, and I had prayed that revival would come to Wheaton the whole time I was there. Well, guess what? Revival did break out, a little one, in 1995. I missed it, so I thought, okay? So I thought. But I'll tell you this one thing, all that praying did do something amazing. It changed me. And I think you will find that the more we're willing to pray to talk to God about people before we talk to people about God, the more discerning we'll be and the more in the flow of what God is doing in the world that we will be if we just talk to God before we do that thing.